Pastor Logan comes to read his holy word with us now. If you would, take out your copy of God's word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 9. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, hallowed be thy name. Father, you are the Holy One, and there is none like you. You are the one who sits in the heavens and does all that he pleases, both in heaven and on earth. And I pray as we think about these realities today, we think about your sovereignty and your goodness, even in the midst of the suffering of this world, Lord, that you would direct our thoughts and our attention towards your majesty and towards your goodness. That you would help us to trust in who you are, knowing that you have purpose in all things. Pray, Father, that we would see all the more through the words of Christ who you are and the beauty of who he is as our Savior. So, Father, would you come through your spirit and work in our hearts, help us to endure, help us to trust, and help us to rest in who you are. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It is good to be back with you again. Well, this morning I want to start our time by posing to us a question to ponder as we begin to look at this text. A question that is debated even among Christians, a question that is often even used as an attempted argument against Christians and the Christian faith, but it is a question that is vital for us to answer. The question is this, if God is good, why is there suffering in this world? Is there a purpose behind so much of the suffering that we see and that we walk through? Or is it all just random and truly meaningless? It's a tough question to answer, especially as we're watching the atrocities of war in our world right now. What is the purpose behind all of that? How do we reckon what is going on and what is happening to people with a God who is all-powerful? Why does suffering exist? 
Well, I believe some of that questioning is at the heart of the disciples' question in these opening verses, which is going to be our, our main focus for today. Now, we're going to dive deep into the question they put before the Lord Jesus Christ here at the beginning of this section. As we now begin a new section, a new chapter of the Gospel of John, we are, we are entering into this beautiful chapter about the saving work of Christ in the opening of the eyes of the blind. Now, the entire thing is meant to be a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Christ is yet again performing another sign to point, point to a, the, the greater reality behind all of it of, of who He is and what He is doing in the salvation of sinners. And for that reason, this story, which is all of chapter 9, has a, a main overarching purpose to it that is meant to be seen together, especially to understand Jesus' concluding words in verses 39 through 41. However, that being said, there are some significant lessons to be seen and understood along the way, especially in this opening as this scenario is established. So today, I, I want to start by looking at the opening five verses. That's as far as we're going to get in order to really focus on the significance of this question from the disciples. And then next week, we'll start looking at the bigger picture of what, what Christ is doing and what John is communicating in this entire story. But this opening question is relevant for every single person in the room. And it really can be sum summarized in a single word. Why? Why was this man born blind? Why does he suffer? And the answer to that is glorious, as we will see. So we're going to look at this really in, in two parts. The question and the answer. And then next week we will start to look at the answer on display. But before Jesus heals this man, he is, he is clearly trying to give his disciples eyes to see the bigger picture of what God is doing, what's going on. And my hope for us is, 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 is the same, that as we ask the questions of why in this world, that we would see that there are bigger things going on all the time in God's matchless and perfect and all-wise plan that is unfolding every second of every day, both in your life and in all of the events that are going on around us. So let's start working through this just here in verse 1 and begin exploring the question. Look at with me at verse 1. It says, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now, at this point, we, we don't really know the, the timing of this event. Now, some think it took place immediately following what happened at the end of chapter 8 as Jesus was leaving the temple. Uh, the man likely was outside of the temple at the temple gate where people in dire situations would often go in the hope of receiving charity from the worshipers going to the temple. So certainly at first blush, it appears that that could have been the case, that this could have been on Jesus' way out. But there are a few problems with that. One is that Jesus was not leaving the temple in a casual manner. 
He had hid himself in order to, be, to avoid being stoned to death. Two is that now his disciples are all with him. And if he was fleeing the temple to avoid death, it would be unlikely that he and his entire group would stop at the gate unnoticed. And then three, this chapter and scene ends with Jesus again addressing the Pharisees, leading to the discourse in chapter 10, which points us to the fact that some time had to have passed, giving their murderous intentions a little bit of time to settle down. So this likely did not take place on the same day as what just happened in chapter 8. In fact, midway through chapter 10, we will see that the Feast of Dedication begins, which takes place in December, around two to three months after the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is likely somewhere in between those two events. But Jesus is in Jerusalem with his disciples, and as they pass by, Jesus sees a man who was blind from birth. Now, it's important to note, this entire chapter is purposely written to be contrasted with the man from back in chapter 5. There are a lot of parallels and contrasts that are meant to be seen in these two events. And I will be pointing some of those out along the way as we go. Back in chapter 5, it was the if you remember, the 38-year invalid who was laying by the pool of Bethesda. Here it is a man who was born blind, sitting by the temple. We don't know how old he is, the text doesn't say, but we know he is a grown man and that all he has ever known is blindness, is darkness. It's all he knows. And in in both cases, back in chapter 5 and this case, the initiation was on the part of Christ. As Jesus enters the scene here, he sees. So this does not begin with the disciples' question. It begins with Jesus seeing this man. The disciples' question was prompted by the fact that they noticed Jesus' attention being drawn to him, not the other way around. The disciples did not draw attention to this man. Jesus did. So just like in chapter 5, this this event was not incidental. This event was purposeful. Jesus is doing something. And Jesus' disciples decide to use this as an opportunity to ask a theological question. Look at verse 2. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now, this is the first time that Jesus' disciples have been mentioned since chapter 6. The focus has largely been on Jesus' interaction with the crowds and the Jewish leadership. But here, John brings them back into the picture, highlighting Jesus' ongoing discipleship of these men. This is not a, a reference to the larger group of disciples that he had gathered. Most of them had abandoned him back in chapter 6. But this is, this is the twelve. This is those minus Judas that he is preparing for apostolic ministry. And John purposefully keeps weaving them into this gospel at key points to show that they are always with him, learning from their master, from their, their teacher, their Lord. And his 
discipleship of these men is building towards the time when he will send them, just as the Father has sent him. But here they, they pose a question for him. Now, the fact that the disciples knew of this man's plight, that he was, he was blind from birth, probably indicates that this was a man that everyone was aware of. He was well known. He had probably been coming to the same spot for a long time. We know he was a beggar. We learn that in verse 8. And in this, as this unfolds, we see that many knew of him and his condition. But being blind from birth posed a difficult-to-explain situation for these Jewish disciples. Why? Why is he like this? What is the reason behind his suffering? Now, there is a rightness and a wrongness about this question. It's, it's right to ask this kind of question, but it is wrong in the way that they asked it. Because for most Jews at the time, in the Jewish worldview of the day, suffering is directly tied to sin. Now, in a sense, that's absolutely correct. I mean, that's, that's what the Bible teaches. All suffering, all disease, all sickness, every malady, every loss, every anxiety, every sleepless night is due to sin, generally speaking. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. God's original design did not include death and disease and deformity and the general desperation that comes often with life. Sin caused that. As we talked about last week from Romans chapter 8, all of creation is, is groaning under the corruption of sin. And so often, people want to shake their fist at God for the suffering in this world, but the reality is, suffering is a result of humanity turning away from God. It is a reflection of the evil in our natural hearts, which has wreaked havoc upon the world and brought the judgment of God through the curse. The fact is, if there was no human sin, there would be no human suffering. And honestly, when we understand the holiness and the goodness of God in creation and the true evil nature of sin, humanity's rejection of God, the real question is not, why is there suffering? The real question is, why is there anything else except for suffering? The fact that God-hating humanity has been given life in the ability to enjoy this world and, and to get married and, and to have children and to eat delicious food and, and to make a living and, and to enjoy the simple pleasures of creation all while rejecting the Creator only goes to show the patience and the mercy and the loving kindness of the God who created all things. We should be marveling not at the sufferings of humanity, but at the blessings given to humanity. That's the real mystery. But nevertheless, we need to understand that all suffering is caused by the existence of sin. However, Jesus does not give them that answer. He could have. And that would have been a right thing to do insofar as it goes. 
All suffering points back to Genesis 3, to the fall, but that answer would not have addressed precisely what they were after. The idea of the existence of suffering being attached to the existence of sin in the fall is clearly not what these disciples were asking. They, they knew that. They understood that reality. They are asking the cause of this specific case of suffering. Why is he blind and others are not? Surely there is a reason. And is that not a question that we all ask at one time or another? Why them? Or, or why me? Or why did this happen? Why did he get cancer? Why did she have to die? Why did that precious family lose their baby? Why was my child born with these problems? I understand the fall, but is it all just random? These are common questions. And they're not wrong questions. Now, in the, in the Jewish mind, in the mind of these disciples, there is really only one option of explanation. And that it is, that it is judgment. That it is retribution for specific sin. In some way, this is someone's fault. This man's condition must be rooted in someone's particular sin. And being that he was born this way, it would have to either be his sin or his parents. And the Jews actually had a category for sinning in the womb. In fact, some rabbis speculated that the reason God chose Jacob and not Esau was because of Esau's sin in the womb. So they had a category for prenatal sin. They also had a category for the sins of parents being judged upon the children, which is a misreading of certain parts of Scripture. But at the end of the day, the idea that suffering was tied to sin was deeply ingrained in Jewish thought. And it was so in order to address the concern that God was causing or allowing suffering in the lives of innocent people. Surely we cannot charge God with that, right? So sin must be present. Much like the friends of Job who believe Job's suffering must have been because of Job's sin. Job, you are reaping what you have sown. Just repent. That was the counsel of his so-called friends. And the Jews had a similar philosophy. One of the ancient rabbis had set forth this principle recorded in the Talmud when he said, There is no death without sin, and there is no suffering without iniquity. And he cited Psalm 89.32 as a proof text where it says, If they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with a rod and their iniquity with stripes. So for them... All suffering must be retribution for sin. And so for these disciples, as they look on this man who is blind from birth, they are 
probably rightly dissatisfied with the answers they've been given by their Jewish leadership, and they want to know what Christ would say about this. But in their heads, there's still only two possibilities. Either he sinned or his parents sinned. Which one is it? Now, before we move on and and look at how Jesus deals with this question, we need to acknowledge the fact that this is not entirely wrong-headed to think that one's suffering can be the result of sin. And the Bible makes it clear that sometimes our infirmities are directly tied to our iniquities. That our sufferings are because of our sins, directly because of our sins. And we need to understand that. Suffering can be a direct result of sin. Consider a few examples. An obvious one, Adam and Eve, driven out of the garden, out of paradise, displaced in this world because of their sin. Cain was a fugitive and a wanderer because of his sin. Miriam, Moses' sister, was struck with leprosy because of her opposition to Moses for her sin. The children of Israel were often sick or plagued or even struck down for their various sins against God. One that is particularly relevant for us Today, what we'll be doing this morning is 1 Corinthians 11. Paul tells the church in Corinth that the reason why many of them were weak and ill and some have even died was because they were taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. In the book of James, we're encouraged to confess our sins when we are sick. Jesus even tells the church in Thyatira in Revelation that he threw the one who's deceiving them onto a sickbed. And that's just a few examples. So can our suffering be a result of our sin? Absolutely it can be. And the the fact is, it seems quite clear that this is one of the contrasts from back in chapter 5. The guy in chapter 5, his suffering was in fact tied directly to his sin. Listen to what Jesus said to him. First thing Jesus says to him after he healed him. says this in John 5.14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Without question, the implication was that his 38 years of being an invalid was somehow caused by his sin. And what should have caused him to tremble was that there was something worse than being an invalid for 38 years out there waiting for him if he continued in his sin. An obvious reference to hell and the coming judgment. So we should all be aware that sin can and does have real world impact in our lives. And there are times when our suffering is simply a cause for repentance. But the reality is, not only is that not the only possible reason, it's not even the normative reason. The, the direct tie to specific sin is not the normative case of our sufferings. And Jesus is going to blow the lid off this faulty paradigm that they have in his answer. Let's look at this. Let's look at his answer. Look at verse 3. 
Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus just destroyed their false dichotomy and gives them an answer that is honestly unsettling to the natural mind. An answer that has got to be grappled with. Because in answer to their question of why is this man blind, Jesus gives them the cosmic purpose behind it all, behind his blindness. That is, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, I want you to think about this. I want us to actually face those implications. The Bible's not running from these implications, and and neither should we. Just think about this for a minute. This man has been blind from birth. He's a man, not a boy. Meaning his suffering has gone on for years, decades even. All he has ever known is darkness. He is a beggar, which tells us that his parents probably could not support him. Which means his life has been reduced to coming to the same spot and asking others for mercy day after day. He has never seen the beauty of the sky or a sunset. He's never seen colors, colors of a flower or the rainbow. He's never known what another person's face looked like. He's never seen a smile or a look of affirmation, including from his loved ones like his mother or his father. He's never been able to read or to write. He has to navigate every road and every room simply by groping around in the darkness. He probably has no real relationships outside of his parents, all the while living in a society that disdained his existence and assumed he deserved it for one reason or another. And that will be seen quite clearly in the attitude of the Pharisees in verse 34 when they say to him, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? That was their attitude towards him. And he struggled with all of this from birth, from birth, from the day he was born, day after day, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. Even with all of our surmising, we cannot even imagine or even begin to imagine all that this man has suffered and gone through because of his blindness. And yet Jesus says, all of it was not due to his sin, nor his parents' sin, but rather for the purposes of God. Brothers and sisters, the only way not only to understand this text, but to embrace what is being said and to rejoice over the truth that is here is one to believe in the sovereignty of a good and righteous God over all things and two to have an eternal perspective. Because the truth is, God is sovereign over suffering. And it's not isolated to this text. It is all over the Bible. And if we are going to understand the sufferings of this world, we have to start there. You see, the impulse of the Jews to impute guilt in every suffering to anybody or everybody 
was an impulse to get God off the hook, so to speak. To avoid what the, what the Bible plainly teaches on this subject. And that is still an impulse that is alive and well today. But the most the common way to get around it now is not to just blame everyone for their own sufferings, although you do, you do still see that, especially in some parts of the charismatic movement. But the most common way to avoid it is to denigrate the sovereignty of God, to deny the godness of God in order to explain it away. In fact, the most common objections to the sovereignty of God over all things are objections of suffering. How could God be sovereign over all things when people like Hamas are creating such atrocities in the world? Or when hurricanes are devastating lives? Or when sickness and disease create unending pain and sorrow? When children are born with lifelong maladies? God cannot be in control of these things, right? Wrong. I want you to, for a moment, consider the alternative. That God is not in control. Because if God is not in control of these things, then logically He is in control of nothing. I mean, if a hurricane or a rogue army or an unstoppable plague can operate outside of the will of God, outside of His decree, and devastate the lives of millions, then how in any meaningful way can we say that God's plans and purposes will be achieved? How can you trust Him for tomorrow? You can't. That would mean that we do, in fact, live in a world of random meaninglessness. When your loved one is killed in a car accident, it has no meaning. No purpose. It was just a senseless, random accident that God either could not stop because He is impotent, or worse, He chose not to stop without any purpose behind His lack of action because He did not ordain it. Those are the only alternatives. But the Bible teaches neither. The Bible teaches that we live in a universe that is completely under the control of a sovereign God. And therefore, everything is completely meaningful. God has a plan and a purpose for everything that comes to pass. Consider some passages to this end. Ephesians 1.11 In Him we have, been obtained, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Lamentations 3 Who has spoken and it came to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Job 2.10, shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. Isaiah 45.7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. 
Amos 3, 6. Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Isaiah 46, 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Psalm 135.6 Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from His storehouse. That includes hurricanes and tornadoes. Or Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? This truth is everywhere. This is what the Bible teaches. In fact, consider one more verse that is particularly relevant for our passage today. God said to Moses in Exodus 4.11, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And that's just scratching scratching the surface of all that the Bible speaks on this reality. God is sovereign over all things, including suffering and calamity. The Bible forces us to reckon with that reality. Now that is not to say that man has no free agency and is not the direct cause of evil in this world. We are. The Scripture is clear. Man is culpable for his choices and God is not the author of sin. But God has ordained and decreed a sinful world to work out all of His purposes and nothing escapes His decree. This is the only God that Scripture presents. And when you press the alternatives, you will find that none of them leave man with any hope whatsoever. And they denigrate God. Because they either leave you with a God who is aloof and uncaring, with no greater purpose for the suffering, or a God who is impotent and has no power at all. But in the Bible, God has revealed himself as the one who is sovereign over all things, even the bad, for his glory. And if you have trouble accepting that respectfully, and I do mean that respectfully, I don't think you have reckoned with what happened on the cross. The single greatest evil ever perpetrated upon this world was the murderous crucifixion of the Holy One. The only innocent man who ever lived. R.C. Sproul once rightly said in answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? He responded, that only happened once. And he volunteered. And that is absolutely true. And speaking of that most sinful and most atrocious moment in history, the Bible says this in Acts 4.28. 
in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Why? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The greatest evil ever committed was planned by God to take place through the ordained and voluntary choices of the evil men who perpetrated it upon him. And yet it was all designed to work for his glory. And that's not just true for that event. Everything that transpires in this world will, in the end, bring glory to God one way or another. Whether it works towards a display of His justice or His mercy, His wrath or His grace, His vengeance or His kindness, His righteousness or His love, His power or His wisdom. God does all things well. And though we do not understand it all and we cannot see it all, we can rest in what He is doing. We can rest in His sovereign plan over all things. And in this man's case, we do get to see what He is doing. We get a beautiful picture of this reality. This man was blind from birth for God's purposes. His suffering was ordained by God. And in his case, Jesus says it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, it would be a mistake to interpret that as being fulfilled in the subsequent healing that takes place. Yes, the healing is a miracle. Yes, it is a miracle that only God can do. It is a display of his power. But that miracle alone was not the ultimate purpose of his blindness. There is a much greater purpose here at work, a greater work that God has in mind, that Jesus has in mind when speaking of what God is doing. And we start to get a sense of that from what he says next. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says to his disciples, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. All through this book, Jesus has been talking about doing the will of his Father, working the works of God, which has been to reveal himself, to reveal God to this world, and to bestow eternal life on all who would believe to save a people for Himself, to lose none of all that the Father has given Him. That is what He has been doing as the light of the world, calling people out of darkness and into His marvelous light, giving them eyes to see. This is the works of which He speaks. But this time, notice, He says, we, we must work the works. Why? He is starting to bring his disciples into his work. Now, you'll notice that as this goes on, they actually don't do anything here. Jesus does everything, but he's teaching them now that the work that he is doing and has been doing is their work too. 
they will carry this on after his departure. And that will become a lot more clear in the upper room discourse. But right now, he says, while he is in the world, he is the light of the world. Now, that is not to say that he is no longer the light of the world once he's gone out of the world after he departs. It's just that it changes. While he was in the world, he was the light of the world in a direct sense. He was here. But after his departure, he is still the light of the world, but not in the same way. His light is still shining, still working, but in a reflective sense through his followers, through his people, through the body of Christ. This is why Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, you are the light of the world. And he is preparing these disciples to carry that on, to carry on his work. Because he says, night is coming when no man can work. This was kind of a proverbial statement in the first century. Because in the the ancient world, they didn't have electricity. When the sun went down, it was dark. No man could work. There was no light. The time for work was over. And obviously, he's using this proverbial metaphor to speak of his rapidly approaching death when his work as the incarnate Son on earth would come to an end. But that truth extrapolates out to all of them and to all of us. Night is coming for every man. That is a time when no man can work, when life comes to an end. His time was limited, and so was theirs, and so is ours. And that's why there's urgency to what he says. He says, we must work the works of God while it is day. Night is coming. All of us, all of us, have limited time on this earth to do this unique work of spreading the light of Christ, proclaiming the the gospel so that others may believe and live. The Apostle Paul knew this with regards to his own life. This is why he said in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor, work for me. That is the labor of the gospel and the building up of the church. That's what Jesus is pointing towards here. The very works of God that will be displayed in this blind man. And for that reason... We cannot see the the healing miracle itself as the fulfillment of God's purpose in this man's suffering. It's much greater than that. This miracle is a sign pointing to the greater reality, the glory of Christ and the salvation of this man's soul, the opening of his spiritual eyes to see and believe upon the Savior. You see, the great miracle is not verse 7. When he comes back seeing, his new physical eyes are going to die with him in a few short years. Now, the great miracle on display is verse 38 when he says, Lord, I believe, and he worships Christ. And those groups, like the extreme charismatic groups who look at stories like this and exalt the healing act itself, and seek to make it normative for the Christian life are missing the point of the sign. 
And because of their missing the point of the sign, they often spend their lives seeking what God has not promised them. Healing in this life. And missing what God has set before them. Grace through suffering that leads to conformity to Christ and knowing Him all the more in the midst of it. God has amazing purposes for the sufferings of His people. Now, for clarity, that does not mean that we should never seek healing in any way. The Bible encourages us to in various ways. The book of James says to let your elders pray over you. Paul tells Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. It was a medicinal use of wine, which validated medical aid. Paul sought the Lord three times, praying himself three times to remove whatever he was dealing with, his thorn in the flesh. So the Bible does not condemn the seeking of healing, but we are to do so with a heart posture that we would be content if the answer comes back, my grace is sufficient for you because my power is made perfect in your weakness. Our greater priority in all of the suffering that we pass through is conformity to Jesus Christ and the glory of God. And while you may think that God would get great glory if He's just healing everybody all the time, the emphasis of Scripture is on the glory He gets when His people abide in trusting in Him as we walk through the sufferings of this life. The fact is, if, if God wanted to impress the world with miracles all the time, He most certainly could. His power is unlimited. But that is not what this story is about. And that's not what he is after. He is after a people who worship him in spirit and in truth, who are conformed to the image of Christ, who see him as all-satisfying and find their joy in him even in the times in which their joy in this world is very difficult. And this is true for all of God's sheep. When Jesus made this statement, he knew this this was one of his. This is one the Father had given him. A sheep that would recognize his voice and follow him. And remember, that discourse is coming on the heels of this event. But what we're seeing in this man's life is just a direct and blatant example of the truth of Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This man's decades of suffering, decades of blindness, was working towards this. He was working towards his good. It is part of what God ordained and used to bring him to Christ and to conform him to the image of Christ. And it is the same for you. You who love God and are called according to his purpose. No matter what you have walked through, no matter what you're walking through right now, and no matter what you will walk through, nothing you experience is outside of God's plan for your life. And all of it is completely meaningful. All of it is working by God's design to prepare you for glory. I, I can promise you this. When we get to heaven, 
if you have a chance to talk to this man and ask him about his suffering and his blindness, he wouldn't trade it for the world. He wouldn't go back and undo it if he could. And neither will you. No matter how painful, how dark, or how long-lasting, or how devastating, whatever it is may be, you wouldn't trade it. Because in the end, it's all temporary. And at that point, you will see with clarity how it was working out God's purposes in your life. This is why Paul says what he says in 2 Corinthians, and I'll end with this. 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient they're passing away but the things that are unseen are eternal for this reason i say with james rejoice in your sufferings church God is doing more than you can imagine or even think. Let's pray. Oh God, who is a God like you declaring the end from the beginning? You have written every day of our lives before a single day has even come to pass. Praise God. Father, we thank you that we can rest in your sovereign plan, that we can trust that everything is unfolding exactly as you have decreed it to do. Nothing escapes you. Nothing is outside of your will. Thank you, Lord, that you have called us according to your purposes. And for that reason, all of it is working towards our good. Help us to trust in you. Help us to look to Christ and rejoice in him, to rejoice in our Redeemer when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.